All right. A little more lights up here today so I can actually see some of my chicken scratches. John 19, verse 5, um, is where Jesus comes before Pilate after having been beaten and uh, dressed uh, mockingly by the soldiers. And it reads this. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When I was young, even young, young kid, seven, eight, uh, into my early teen years, I loved travel stories. Solo dude, nothing but a backpack, walking across America, walking across China. Uh, the, there was a, a book by Peter Jenkins called A Walk Across America that I literally read until it broke. I found packing tape, taped it back together, and continued reading it. Uh, Lewis and Clark stories. Uh, I read Lewis and Clark's journals when I was young. I loved hobo stories. Homeless guy jumping on a train, sneaking his way across the uh, mountains. Oregon Trail stories. I got into Columbus, Columbus for a time. I loved Hatchet, Voyage of the Frog, The Hobbit, which is basically just a walk across America in Middle Earth. <laughs> Voyage of the Dawn Treader was my all-time favorite book. It's another book that I had to tape back together I read so many times. In fact, Reap a Cheap, when I was young, was who I wanted to be when I grew up. The, the picture of him hanging off the front of the Don Treader, holding on with his tail, with his nose out in front of the, the, dragon, the, the dragon on the front of the Don Treader, his nose hanging off the front, pointing east. We sail east as long as this boat continues, and then I'll get in my coracle and I'll paddle east as long as I can, and then if my coracle sinks, I'll swim east. I'm headed that direction no matter what. Those were the stories that captured my imagination that I couldn't help but read over and over over and over. And as I grew, as I got a little bit older, uh, that the romance of unplugging, heading into the unknown, alone, took on a, a, new, a new flavor. Because as I grew, I realized that there was a deep alienation that I felt in, in myself. I didn't feel like there was a place in the world. I didn't understand it. But I knew that one of the reasons that I loved these stories was because the place where I was didn't feel like I fit there. I didn't feel like there was a world that all fit together and I knew, and this is my spot in that world that fits together. It was like I was watching my life from the balcony. Right? I was watching myself live my life and I was sitting in the balcony I didn't know yet French, and so I didn't know there was a word for that. <laughs> and of course, the French would be the ones that came up with it. They called it ennui, right? the feeling that there isn't a spot in the world for you, or the feeling of alienation. Uh, I filled that feeling of alienation with skateboards and joke punk. Right? started going to punk rock shows and listening to the dead milkmen secretly in my room and, and then skateboarding and you know, trying to learn kickflips and 
you know, all day long. But there is actually an answer to that. We talked yesterday about how Jesus is the great high priest. And I'll come back and we'll talk about ennui some more. But just to review yesterday, we talked about how Jesus is the great high priest. Um, and that God, when God created Adam... Uh, Adam is created as the first priest, and Adam and Eve together are the, the king and the queen of the world, but they're also the first uh, priestly family of the world. And that, that means um, that we are all descendants of that priestly line. We are all priests after the order of Adam, priests after the order of Adam and Eve. And uh, because that is who we are, because that's who, who God created us to be, even when we turn away from God, we do it in a way that a priest would turn away from God. Um, Francis Schaeffer used to call this the mannishness of man. Right? That in our nature, we are who God created us to be. Right? He created us as men and women. He created us uh, to be kings and to be priests. And so even when we turn away from God, we do it in that kingly and priestly way. And a priest's job is to be a bridge between and then to oblate. Now, you might not have ever heard the word oblate. It's, I love the word oblate. Uh, oblate means to lift up or to lift across or to take across a chasm, um, but it's a vertical chasm, to take across a vertical chasm. Right, so uh, what a priest does is you know, they, let's say, um, they're, they're doing um, a, they're, they're taking an offering that is a dove. Kids, girls, I'm sorry. This was what they did to doves back then. Boys, you're welcome. This is what they did to doves back then. Or they take the dove, and they take it over, and they've got this bowl of, of water, and they would twist the dove's head off. Squeak. And then they would pour the blood in, and then they would mix the blood and the water together, and then they would take a piece of hyssop and they would dip it in, and they would flip the blood and water at you. And the boys were like, yes. <laughs> and the girls were like, the poor dove. <laughs> but it was because they had to, uh, they, that they were there to create a bridge between God and man, and death was the chasm. Right? Death was the thing that was in the way. And so something to get across the chasm had to die. And what, what the, uh, God began setting up from the very beginning was a sacrificial system, right? We, uh, when Adam and Eve sinned, they were told, the day that you eat of this fruit, you will surely die, right? And right out the gate, they said, fruit, okay, let's do it. And they jump in, they sin, and God says, you will surely die on that day. But instead of us dying... He begins establishing a sacrificial system by taking animals and they die on our behalf and become our clothes. Right out the gate. God is the first one to do sacrifices in order to teach priests the beginning of the sacrificial system. And so we've got this sacrificial system set up so that priests can lift people across the chasm towards God. That's what priests do. They oblate. They lift things across. The problem is, when we turned away from God, we kept our priestly nature, but we no longer had the relationship with God that we needed to be able to oblate properly, to be able to bridge properly. The problem is now, we're not just priests, we're priests under a curse 
in a cursed world. God begins cursing. Right, right when we sin, he, he begins laying down the curses that come from sin. He gives a curse on the serpent, a curse on the ground, a, a curse on childbearing, a curse on work. He begins, there's a, there's a curse of, of rivalry. There's a curse of shame. There's a curse of exile. And the fundamental curse underneath all of them, the curse of death that was on the, on, on the world now. Now the curse on the ground was, the cur- we, was symbolized by thorns and thistles. When you're telling a story, when you're writing a movie and you take an object and you make it the visual representation of something, you, they call it charging an object. Right? You charge up an object with emotional resonance. You charge up an image with, uh, the, so that it can represent some, some internal struggle or some, something that's going on within the character. You externalize. They call it externalizing the emotional state of the character into an object. And God externalizes or he charges up thorns and thistles. He said, this is what will represent my curse on the ground. The curse of alienation between the world and Adam and Eve. Because they were supposed to go out and garden it. That was what they were given to do. Go out and garden this place. And when when they started gardening, it mostly involved this. Ooh, fruit. Ah, I'm a really good gardener. (laughs) The world just volunteered up its fruits. But because of sin, thorns and thistles grew up instead. They had to begin working, uh, and, and, and it became a sweaty, sweaty business to bring the world to its fruitfulness. Our relationship with the world was cursed because our relationship with God was now one of alienation. And, so, and that alienation seeped out in every direction. Now, in the ancient world, I, I got to teach classics for about seven years. And one of the things that you find out really quick about the ancient world is, one, it's really violent. Everything, everything was violent. But they're also constantly trying to find ways out of the alienation. They're always trying, they're, they're like helium balloons and they're constantly trying to tie themselves down somewhere to something. Whether it's through empires or uh, through uh, in coming up with sacrificial systems or through storytelling. They're, they're, they are helium souls trying to float away and they're constantly coming up with ways to tie themselves down. And uh, most of it had to do with blood sacrifices and even human sacrifices. In some of the most civilized places in the ancient world, you would find human sacrifices. There's one uh, story of of a a Roman city that had uh, the goddess that was supposed to take care of them had had at some point, they thought, come down and, and sat in a particular tree right outside in front of the, uh, of the city and, um, and said, so long as you continue giving me children, then I will protect your city. And so there were baskets all throughout this tree. And this is right in the middle of the civilization of the Roman Empire. And they would take their uh, firstborn child and they would put it in the basket and let it die thinking that, that, that then that uh, child would ascend into, into the uh, courts 
of this goddess. And then so long as she was surrounded with children, that's because that's what she loved, she would protect the city. The Christians used to, they call it, would sneak out in the middle of the night and take the children home. And so Christians in that city were famous for having 14, 15, 16 kids. And it was illegal to take the children, and it was a death penalty if you were caught taking one of the children away. And so uh, they just said, no, no, our wives have twins and triplets all the time. <laughs> they called them life raids. So it's, er, and that's basically early planned parenthood, and they're going and rescuing the children. But they were looking for ways to find protection in a world that they thought was out to get them. Right, in a world that they were alienated from. It, it was a world that was too dangerous to live in because it was a world filled with thorns and thistles. And so they protected themselves with blood. But it was always like holding a beach ball underwater, right? where you could hold it down, but it's always trying to escape and jump up. Right? The alienation was like that. Well, then Jesus comes along and he says, hook yourself to me. And then he wanders the world through his evangelists, cutting all of the strings that they, that they think are holding the helium down and grabbing the balloons and taking them to himself, right? And so uh, now we're beyond that. We, we don't have any of those ancient world connections, but then we've turned away from Jesus again as a culture. But Jesus, and Jesus has already clipped all of the strings. He's like Tom Bombadil dancing, cutting strings or like Solomon in Ecclesiastes, dancing across the bridge. Don't jump there, you'll die. Don't jump there, you'll die. Come this way, there's a feast. But because Jesus has already taken care and said none of those things in the ancient world worked, when we've turned away from Jesus as a culture, what we found is nothing. We found emptiness. We found a void again. There's a a modern German philosopher named Heidegger. Just one, one philosophy story. Heidegger was uh, the philosopher, he's, he's famous for inventing deconstructionism, so you might have heard of that or heard of him. But he writes a, uh, he, he wrote an, an article called um, What is Metaphysics? Right? And his conclusion was, so metaphysics is, it used to be the study of what a thing is and what a thing is for. Right? And, but he said, but in the modern world, because of, of the scientific rev revolution, what we have learned is that things aren't anything. Things are just how matter happens to be put together right now in the moment. So he says, what is metaphysics? It's nothing. No thing has a nature. No thing has a, you can't say this is what it is and this is what it's for, because it just happens to be a collection of matter held together in this moment, in this shape, but that matter won't be that way for long. Even a person that you meet, they're just a collection of atoms. They're just cells. They're just a clump of cells held together in this shape in this moment. But eventually, they'll die, they'll disintegrate, and they'll become dirt and, or something else. Get eaten by a turtle and end up turtle poop. It's the obvious way to go, right? <laughs> so he says, metaphysics is nothing. He says, the problem is people 
have this pesky priesthood. And this is what he says. This pesky priesthood that makes them want to stand between things. And he said, so they uh, find out that they are priests of nothing. That their mind reaches out to bridge the chasm with the unknown. And when they discover there's nothing there, they discover that they are priests of nothing. And he says, so all we have left is nihilism. The ability to define everything by what it's not. Because nothing is anything, so it only can be described as what it's not. So the natural state of mankind, then, is alienation. Now, what's so hard about reading Heidegger is you're like, you're so right while being wrong. (laughs) If there is no God, he is absolutely right. That the fact that we have this impulse towards a priesthood into a void of nothingness would be just despair and alienation is all that there is. But this is the shape of the alienation that your friends and your family and your neighbors are swimming in. And, uh, like Kuiper says, we can, never, uh, we can never think that the water that we're swimming in doesn't affect us. Right? That the cultural water we're swimming in doesn't affect us. This is actually the alienation that we all bump into. And sometimes we jump into. It was the alienation that I grew up in. And so long, and, and we're going to be talking a little bit about evangelism in the conclusion, but so long as the gospel that we preach is simple behavior modification, if we think that's the good news, that behavior modification is the point, we're going to be unsuccessful. Because therapeutic deism isn't any more helpful than therapeutic atheism to a ghost that's haunting the balcony of its own life. We need a gospel that can return us to the world, that can return us to creation, that can return us to an actual place so that we look and we say, I know where I fit. And to a world that is... is full to the brim with people that think of themselves as ghosts riding around on gorillas. Let me explain. (laughs) We we think of ourselves as, what, what is our body? Well, we're just an animal. We happen to have this mind that can think and that, that maybe has the levers of that make the animal move itself around. But we're just an animal. There's no way to, all of the rhetoric that people hear all the time, it's just a fetus when talking about abortion. It's just a fetus. It's not a real, it's just a clump of cells, right? Literally, that's all you are in that same definition, right? We're, the mom is just a clump of cells too. It's not just the baby that turns out to be just a clump of cells, right? In, in, and that's Heidegger's point. We're just a clump of cells. So the fact that our mind can think in objective categories is actually terrifying. It's actually a curse. 
if we're just a clump of cells, to be able to think also objectively becomes a curse. And there's no way that coming along and saying, well, what's the good news? You can have a little bit more self-control. You can stop doing this. You can stop doing that. That's not good news to a ghost riding around on the shoulders of a gorilla. We need a gospel that actually reintegrates us into reality. A gospel that, that says that the, the thing that has alienated us can be moved out of the way and be, we can be returned to have a real place in the world. So let's look at John 19.5. Then Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Behold the man. Pilate recognizes something about Jesus that often we as modern Christians have forgotten. Jesus is the man. We remember that Jesus is the full revelation of God. If you want to know what God is is like, look at Jesus. Jesus is the full revelation of God. He is God incarnate. He is the perfect picture, the perfect uh, revelation of who God is. If you want to know God, look at Jesus. But also, if you want to know what mankind is, if you want to know what it is to be human, we look at Jesus. Jesus is the full revelation of God, but he's also the full revelation of mankind. He's the full revelation of humanity. And this is, this is the, the, the definition of Chalcedon. That's what this, the, the, the third ecumenical council was all about. Jesus is he's the full revelation of God. He's also the logos, the word, the principle that holds all things together. He is the the principle that gives everything else its definition. But Colossians tells us he is the image of God. He is the imago Dei, the same thing that Adam was when Adam was created. Jesus is the, the full revelation of the image of God in man. He is the new Adam. He is the new source of restored humanity. Our original humanity comes to us because we're descendants of Adam and Eve. Our restored humanity comes to us because we've been born again into the family of Jesus Christ. He's the new king. He's the one that's come in a purple robe. He's wearing the new crown. And what's the crown made of? Thorns. He's wearing the thorns and the thistles on his head. He's taking the curse of alienation onto himself. God has been charging up the object of thorns and thistles all this time throughout the Old Testament so that Jesus can have them wrapped around his head and he can transform the thing that was a curse into a crown. Because Jesus came as a lot of things, but central to it is he came as the curse breaker. He came as as the warrior that was going to swallow the curses of God into himself, wear them as he goes up onto the cross. He is cursed because he is the one who hangs on a tree. 
and every single one of the curses. He embodies, takes on to himself, wears as a victorious warrior, and nails them to the cross. Jesus' death on the cross is the solution to our alienation from the world. It's the solution to the fact that we bob along and don't have a place. It's not a solution in the way we would expect, though, because he doesn't just grab hold of us and staple us back in. The solution to our alienation is that he is alienated from the Father on the cross. He's nailed up to the cross, and he goes into exile from his Father. And he cries out on the cross the first words of Psalm 22, Eloi, Eloi, lama sambachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He goes in to alienation, he goes into exile on our behalf. From all eternity, he's been in perfect fellowship with the Father. But he goes into exile on the cross in order to rescue the exiled from their sin. And in fact, all of the curses Jesus takes care of on the cross, including crushing the head of the serpent as he's taken up onto Golgotha, the place of the skull And the cross is shoved right into the top of the skull. All of the curses are broken when Jesus dies for us on the cross. Now, what does this have to do with evangelism? We tend to evangelize in terms of behavior modification. Somebody comes to us and they say, man, I've got problems. And you're like, yeah, you do. Look at the way you do that, and the way you do that, and the way you do that. And we think that the problem is their behaviors. But the problem is their alienation, their alienation from God, their alienation from the world. All of their behaviors are flowing out of that. Right? If, we want, if we want to answer, though, alienation with the good news, then we have to be living a life that is fighting that alienation, living a life that is, uh, that, that is reintegrated, living a life that is not full of rivalry. The best thing that you can do to, if you want to be evangelistic is to live a life that fights alienation with grace, with confession of our own sin and grace for other sin. It's learning how, because it's lies in the first place that broke everything and caused the alienation. And confession means saying along with God what is true. When we confess our sins, when we confess our faith, we're saying along with God what is true. So let's say you get angry at your neighbor because he keeps mowing on to your part of the lawn. So you pick up a brick, as one is wont to do, and you go out and you smash the windshield of his car because you've had too much. 
trying to come up with an example that hopefully no one has ever actually done so that we can all think about the problem objectively together and so that there's not someone sitting out there saying, who told him? Because that's what usually happens. Right? So you, you go out and you smash in your neighbor's windshield again. And, uh, and your neighbor comes out and he's like, brother, we go to church together. <laughs> and he says, y you can't treat people that way. And you get convicted of your sin. You're like, you're right. And so you go to confess your sin. <sighs> I shouldn't have acted in anger. I shouldn't have tried to hurt you. I shouldn't have broken the windshield of your car. That was sin. Please forgive me. I'm going to go buy you another windshield. I'm going to take care of it. And he, of course, says, I forgive you. You guys hug, you make up, and you go have the Lord's Supper together that Sunday. Right? We fight the alienation with confession. With saying, I agree with you, Lord, on the kind of world that we live in, and I agree with you on the kind of world that we're supposed to have, and then more importantly, with grace. We cross the chasm of other people's sins with forgiveness. We restore and, and move beyond rivalry with forgiveness. Uh, and, but but it's, it's, one, it's even more than that, though. Because there, if we live in a world that is fully integrated and held together by Jesus, if Jesus is the man, then the way that we say, behold the man with our lives is by imitating Jesus. It's by saying, this is how Jesus lives his life. This is what Jesus has done. I'm going to live that way. So that if somebody comes up to you and says, man, your kids... They like you, they do what you say, they talk back minimally. <laughs> right? uh, you guys seem to have a good relationship. How do you do it? Right? Our temptation in that moment is to think, you know, here's my manual on spanking, right? This is how I accomplished that thing that you want. Right? Because we think that uh, good advice is, it, 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 we, we will give advice if we think that the gospel is behavior modification. But if the gospel is behold the man, then even in everything we do, what we're going to say is, okay, how has Jesus treated me? Kids, come here. I need someone to practice on. How has Jesus treated his wife? Wife, come here. I got to treat somebody the way Jesus does. Husband, come here. I got to imitate Jesus a little bit. Right? If, if the whole thing is held together by behold the man, then when somebody asks for advice, the answer should be, well, let's see, what would Jesus do in that situation? Right? That's what I try to do. How, did, how has the Father treated me? Well, I look at Jesus to find out, and then I imitate him. So every even question for advice becomes, and the answer becomes, behold the man. Behold the man who broke sin's hold on me. 
Let me tell you about Jesus a little bit. Now, this was something that uh, I actually learned from my wife, watching the way that young moms would come up to her in the park and say, wow, how do you get your kids to be like that? And she'd say, well, let me tell you about how Jesus has treated me. I'm just doing what I can to imitate him with the way that I treat my kids. And I was like, you're brilliant. How did you come up with that? And she said, come up with what? (laughs) She's like, that's just the truth. Um, But we've seen the way God has brought people into our lives over and over and brought people to our dinner table over and over and over who come in saying, I just don't know what to do. I just need some rules. I just need like a how-to manual. And we have seen people that have had how-to manuals stacked to their roof whose lives are in shambles because they have not yet beheld the man who took the curse from them. We had a young gentleman that lived underneath us. Um, gentleman might be an over- overstatement. And he, he and his friends um, used to uh, sit in the living room and smoke pot. And we lived in an apartment complex or an apartment building that, I don't know, 100 years old. It was old enough that it didn't hold the smoke in, in place, right? It would seep up into our house, and, but he, we, it, into our apartment. But, but in order to get to our apartment, we had to walk by his back door, and he used to sit out there. And, and so um, I started saying, like, okay, well, here's a neighbor. Let's get to know him. And so there's very few doors that chocolate and whiskey won't open. And so... Um, used to go down with a couple of glasses and a bottle of whiskey, and, and my wife would make brownies, and, um, and we'd go, hey, what are you up to? You want to sit on the porch, and he'd smoke cigarettes, and we'd drink whiskey, and we'd chat and get to know each other. And, um, well, but, but when we brought one of our kids home from the doctor, or from the hospital when he was a newborn as a preemie, and um, the smoke filling up the house became a problem, right? Got a preemie. Got lung issues, and and so the the uh, we had already had our previous apartment had had pot smoke filling up the house problems, and I you know came home from work one day because my wife was like, hey, our house is filled with pot smoke. I'm really concerned about it, and I was like, in my mind, because I was a young husband and I didn't know yet, I thought, okay, she's probably overstating it. Right, as I get home and open up the back door, and it's like, poof. It's like, you guys, what are you guys hotboxing in here for? And right as I walk in, my oldest daughter, who's about three at the time, comes out and says, Mom, do we have any Cheetos? <laughs> my wife looks at me and says, Your children have the munchies. You've got to do something about this, right? We have. And so, so we end up moving, and, that, and in a new place, it's suddenly filling up with pot smoke, and I'm like, Lord, what is going on? So go down, knock on the door. Friend, my house is filling up with pot smoke. We just brought a preemie home. I don't care if you smoke pot, but you can't do it here because it's, it's filling up our apartment. And I was like, if, and this, is, this, this was the early 2000s, so marijuana was still illegal. If you do, I'm going to have to call the police on you. And he's like, dude, bro, no problem. 
Won't happen again. Three weeks later, it's like, what's is there a skunk? What's going on? Oh, no. Right, smoke a pot. Call the cops. Cops show up at his door. Right. About, my timelines are never off. In my mind, it was about a week later. I don't know how long it was in reality. Because one of the things I've been alienated from is, the, is a properly functioning calendar in my imagination. Right. But, but, so about a week later, in the middle of the night, knock on the door, midnight. Like, that's not normal. Even in that neighborhood, that wasn't normal. So go down and look through the window, and it's this guy that I just called the cops on, that the police literally came to, had him come out to the front yard, and I had a conversation with him. And I'm like, honey, go lock yourself in the bedroom with the kids. I'm going to peek through the door, see what's going on. Open the door, and he says, I just want to say thank you. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, nobody's ever done anything that nice to me before. And I was like, <laughs> which, which thing are you talking on me? Talking about? And he said, warned me before you called the cops on me. <laughs> it's like, I just don't have anybody in my life that that's, that's that nice. It's like, my friend, you have had a hard life. Come on in. He's a little drunk. Comes on in, starts telling me his life story. Teenage, as a teenager, he'd run away from home. Hadn't talked to his parents since. He was in his early 20s. And he had just been bouncing from job to job, trying to, trying to find footing in his life. And I was like, you know, what you actually need is Jesus. He's like, I thought you were going to say that. He's <laughs> <Right? laughs> like, so, somebody at one point gave me the C.S. Lewis book, so I never read it, but it sits on my shelf and haunts me. <laughs> right, so explain to him, and he's like, okay. So we pray together. It's like, but you know what you need to do? You got to call your parents. He's like, okay. So he uses my phone, calls his mom. He hasn't talked to his mom in years. And turns out his parents have become Christians while after he left. And he, she and her prayer group have been praying for him specifically. And, um, and so he, uh, he ends up moving back home uh, to, to close to his parents again. So he becomes a Christian, starts going to church, moves back home, reunites with his parents. About a year later, he shows up at our, my door again with his new girlfriend. He wants us to meet her. He says, oh my gosh, look at this. I met this girl at church. She's great. Um, and to say thank you. And... and uh, it, it was not, if, um, if the good news was simple behavior modification, then what he would have needed was rehab. But that is not the good news. His problem is that he is alienated. And he knows it because he hasn't talked to his parents in seven, eight years. He's alienated from the world. He's alienated from the people that he should be with. He's alien, and, he, and it all stems from an alienation from God. And all it took was to see some non-alienated life. It's the opposite of seeing alien life. Right? For him to say, that's where I go when, I, when, when things fall apart. That's what I don't have. 
Because the good news is behold the man. That there is a way to have your humanity restored to what it's intended to be. There is a way to return to the world, to return to reality, and you can live the way that you're intended to be. And it turns out, if we're all created to be priests, and if, like we saw yesterday, that, that everybody is fair game because Jesus died so that every tribe, tongue, nation, and people would be brought back into their proper relationship with God and the world, and if, every one of our, uh, and if every one of us are priests, then every one of us has the opportunity day in and day out to do what priests do, which is deliver grace. Deliver grace that restores us to who we were intended to be. And the central way we do that is the same thing the pilot did here. It's just point and say, behold the man. He's the one that we follow. He's the one that we imitate. And he's the one that died on the cross to break every curse, to take every distance away, to destroy all of our guilt, to unravel all of our fear, and to cover all of our shame. When we live integrated lives that are not alienated from the world, then evangelism is going to happen. And all we have to do is be ready to point people to Jesus. We don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to be good at apologetics. We just have to be ready to say, behold the man. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for what Jesus has done for us on the cross. But we're so grateful that he took the curses onto himself, that he crushed the head of the serpent, that he bled and died for us. Father, help us to, by faith, learn to, to return to reality. And Father, we pray that you would make us priests and kings with eyes open to see opportunities to extend grace, to see other people restored to your son, to see other people restored to reality by your son. Lord, we pray that you would bless us, that you would keep us, that you would take care of us today as we play and enjoy this uh, beautiful place. And we pray, Father, that you, would, that you would grant us the gift of integrated lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.